0: You may be seated. Our sermon text today is Hebrews 8, beginning in the final verse of chapter 8, verse 13, through the first 14 verses of Hebrews 9. When I was a a young child, I used to love to collect baseball cards, Like I said before, I love baseball, and so it was neat to see these cards, to look at them, to see the pictures of my heroes, and to read the statistics on the back. But what I really loved to do, more than anything else, was to sort out my baseball cards. I loved to sort them. I would put them in different groupings. I would maybe sort them into teams. (coughs) I'd take... Uh, all the Tigers and put them here, all the Cardinals here, the Cubs and the White Sox and the Indians and the Yankees and the Pirates and the Reds and put them all into the different... separating them one from another so that they went into their proper groupings. Or perhaps if I wanted to see which cards I had and didn't have... The way I would separate them on that day was I would look at a checklist, and they'd, they'd have a checklist, and each card had a number assigned to it on the back, and, and they were sort of randomly assigned, and so I would I would just look through the checklist, and I'd sort them out, and I'd take, well, the first, you know, there might be 600 cards in a set, so I'd put the first 100 in one pile, and the next 100 in another pile, according to card number, and I'd, I'd separate them according to card number so that I could kind of break them down eventually and see which cards I was missing that I needed to complete the set. I would separate them that way. There were many different ways I could separate these cards, one from another, as I was putting them together. This passage we look at today is very much a passage about separation. Separation of different groups, separation of different places. Setting up separations. We see in this passage specifically, I hope, that we'll find that we're separated from God because of our sin. Secondly, that we are separated unto God for his service. And finally, we're going to see the way that God breaks down this separation that had existed so that we might enter into the separation that now exists. Follow along with me as I read from Hebrews Chapter 8, verse 13, through chapter 9, verse 14. This is the inspired word of God. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lamp stand, and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we... Thank you so much for your word, for the direction it gives us, for the guidance it provides into holy living. But we especially thank you that it is not just a book of moral guidance, but rather a book that tells us the true story of your son and our savior, Christ Jesus, who is the spotless lamb of God, who is the one offered up for our sins that we might be made holy that we might even come before you now and not be consumed by your holiness but rather revel in it we pray that you would help us to see christ more clearly during this time speak to our hearts that we might long for you that our passion for you might increase give us eyes to see and ears to hear teach us lead us be with us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> well, like I said, when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards, and and you know the hope was always when you got a pack of baseball cards that you'd open it up and get a, a really valuable one inside, right? That there'd be be some great superstar, maybe maybe a new superstar who burst onto the scene who was a rookie but was sure to be a great player, and you could get his rookie card, and it would be. It'd be worth so much money someday, and you were gonna get rich with this card. The reason we got this idea as kids was because there were baseball cards that were worth a lot. Let me, let me show you this one right here. You see, you guys can't see this from where you are, but you see, I get this one in my hand. It's, it's Honus Wagner, it's the T209 set from 1909, and, and this card is worth $2.8 million. Somebody actually paid that for this. Now, of course, this isn't the actual card here. <laughs> it's just a picture of it. And it looks just like it. It's very similar, but but you know it it's not the actual thing. It's just a picture of it. It's a it's a representation of it. It's a vague and shadowy image, we could say, of the real thing. And that's really what the whole message that we've been receiving through the book of Hebrews is isn't it that the old covenant though it was of certain worth is worth very very little compared to the new covenant you know I suppose this is probably worth something I I could probably find somebody who'd give me 10 cents for this right but what's 10 cents compared to 2.8 million dollars and that's kind of the comparison between the old and the new covenant i mean this is this is pretty enough the colors are sharp right and and it, it it's a nice picture and and all but but it's of no value compared to the real thing that's how the old covenant was it it had value it it served a purpose But compared to the new covenant, compared to the real thing toward which it pointed, of which it was but a shadowy image, compared to that it had no value. It could be said this way, as in verse 13, that the new covenant makes the first one obsolete. It's growing old and is ready to vanish away, we could say. Now, again, it's not that it was worthless, but just that comparatively it had no worth. It it did have worth, though, in that it pointed to real things of real worth and real value value that is inestimable, even. The first covenant had regulations for worship, we're told, in an earthly place of holiness. That's the tabernacle. You might have noticed in your bulletin, we've got a picture here uh, of the tabernacle in and, and, and your bulletin. I put that there so you could kind of look at that as we're going along here in, in the sermon. And, and you'll see in here, it's kind of a big area with, with this tent in the middle, which was the, the earthly place of worship being talked about here. You'll see it's split up into different areas with different objects Inside of it, this passage that we look at today talks about these sections, talks about this place. And what this tabernacle demonstrates, among many other lesser truths, is this one great truth. And that is that we are separated from God because of our sin. That truth is just reinforced time and time and time again by the architecture of the the tabernacle, by the the activities that take place in the tabernacle, by everything about the tabernacle. It reminds us that because of our sin, we are separated from God. This tent was prepared, verse 2 tells us, in the first section in which were the lampstand, lampstand the table, and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place and we can see that it's the the larger two thirds of of this tent here it has those items inside of it but then there's a veil there's there's a curtain a veil you see in the picture and behind that veil is what is called the most holy place that most holy place or or some versions refer to it as the holy of holies and what we see in that section the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, and those items inside the ark. We see, we, we don't have time to go into all the details, but we've got the, the golden urn that holds the manna that's mentioned in Exodus 16, and Aaron's staff that budded that's mentioned in no- Numbers 17, and the tablets of the covenant that is, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, we see these tablets given. Now, each one of these things, without going into all the details, you can look up those passages if you want to gain more, but but each one of these share a truth. Each one of these items are different times where, where God in heaven actually came near to his people. Not just came near to people in general, not just came near to all people, but came near specifically to his people. The people that he had chosen for himself he came near in a special way in these different times and that is symbolized by these objects that are present inside the ark of the covenant that is inside the Holy of Holies it's not normal for God to come near to a sinful people of course we are separated we have said by our sin but here's what's most important about the Holy of Holies if we remember nothing else about the Holy of Holies we need to remember this it is where god in all of his glory took up residence in the midst of his people it was in the holy of holies we see in verse five above it with a cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat where where god sat in his glory if it pleases you of these things we cannot speak in detail. It says here we, we could look at Exodus 25 if you wanted to on your own, and, and it'll give you detail about how all this worked. But, but it suffices to say, remember when we studied Leviticus not too long ago, and, and we said as a setting for Leviticus, we needed to look at what came right before it. In Exodus 40, at the very end of Exodus, right before Leviticus, we saw how Exodus 40, the tabernacle, was erected. And the Spirit of God descended upon the tabernacle and it dwelt there in the midst of the covenant community, the people of God living here. And there was a tent, right? A tent right in the neighborhood, right in the subdivision with them, if you will, that God lived in. God was their neighbor. And we ask the question, how could this holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? And the book of Leviticus provided us kind of with the answer to that question. It showed us how that took place with those sacrifices, but ultimately not pointing just to those sacrifices, but those sacrifices, of course, pointing to Christ Jesus. And so God was set apart from his people because even though he was in the midst of his people living in the tabernacle, there was this certain section, the Holy of Holies, and the people couldn't just go into that presence. They couldn't go behind the veil. We see in verses 6 and 7, it kind of gives you the details of it. It's, it shows us that it's, it's no light matter to enter into the presence of a holy God. It couldn't be just anyone who did it, it had to be a priest. And it couldn't just be any priest who went behind the veil into the presence of God. It had to be the high priest. And the high priest couldn't do this as often as they liked. They they could only do it once per year. And they couldn't do it whenever they wanted to, whenever it was convenient for them. It had to be on a specific date. And he couldn't do it on his own terms. He had to come covered with blood. And he couldn't do it for his own reasons, just because he felt like it that day. It had to be specifically to offer sacrifice for the people of God. There's no light and matter to enter into the presence of a holy God. And in order to access God, we're reminded of this by the tabernacle, you need a mediator and a sacrifice. These are things that are made very clear to us through the sacrificial system. As we said before, the reason for this all is our sin. That is why we are separated from God. And so I I think that it's good for us to be reminded because we often think too little of our sin, I think. Uh, When we talk about our sin, what we're talking about is not just uh, the most heinous acts that we can imagine. You know, the, the really terrible, awful, vile things that we do. And some of us think, well, I really don't do any awful, vile, heinous acts, so I'm really not one of those sinners, right? But, but as we said before in our prayer of confession, our, our sin is not just these awful and vile acts. It's anytime we do something that is less than perfectly holy. And beyond that, it's not just when we do the things that we ought not to do. So when we don't do the things that we ought to do, right? So it's not just harming your neighbor, for instance. It's also not helping your neighbor when you ought to help them. That's just as much a sin. It's any time we not only do or don't do these things, we see that we can sin not only in deed, but also in word, in the words we say. But even beyond that, by the thoughts we have. We sin in thought, word, and deed. The things we do, the things we don't do. And even beyond all of that, even before we have actually done anything or not done anything or said anything or not said anything or, or even had a thought that is sinful, we are already Sinners. We are sinners not just because of what we do, but rather we sin because of what we are. We are sinners as descendants of Adam. We inherit his sinfulness. And so we start off as sinners and try as we might to earn our way back to God. There is no way that we can bridge that gap. Our works are, as verse 14 puts it, dead works. Dead works in that they are the works of a dead man. We are dead in our sin. Dead works in that they can't bring about life. There is no ability in them to bring about life. Dead works in that if we seek to have those works save us, they will lead us down the path only to further death. It's the type of arrangement that's spoken of in verse 9. Gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but only deal with food and drink and various washings Washington's various regulations for the body. It's, it's external things. But see, God's more concerned with our heart than just the external outward things. He's concerned with so much more. If we skip to the end of our passage today, we'll see where he wants us to end up. He wants us in the end to have a purified conscience. He says in verse 14, he wants to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, that's one of the worst things about sin, isn't it? When when you sin and your conscience just gnaws at you. Have you ever been? I'm not even going to ask if you've ever. You've all been there, right? We've all been there, every one of us. Had those things that just, just haunt us. In the back of our mind, the time you did that, the time you said that one thing, the time you failed to help out when you knew you should have helped out, and it just haunts you. It just, in the back of your mind, just keeps coming back, remember that time, remember that time, remember that time, and your conscience is just convicting you time and time again, and the guilt that comes with it it's terrible it's one of the reasons that i long for that day when christ jesus returns and and we have no more sin and i sin no more i'll no more ever again have to feel guilty about anything be completely free from that i long for that so much and you should too that's what god wants us to be he wants to purify our conscience you see It hasn't always been that way that that mankind has had a guilty conscience. We look back to paradise, back to Eden in the very beginning. The first two chapters of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the garden and their, their existence is perfect. They walk with God in the cool of the day and all is perfect. They have perfect fellowship with him and with one another. We're told they're they are naked and not ashamed. The idea not just being a physical nakedness, but but of a spiritual nakedness. They, they are completely free. They, they show everything about them, and there is nothing to be ashamed of. They don't need to build up walls. They don't need to cover themselves. They don't need to hide anything about themselves. Wouldn't that be freeing if you never had to hide anything about yourself? If you could just to everybody in the world, let everybody know everything about you, and you didn't have to worry about anything. You were just completely confident that even though you were perfectly known, that you could still be perfectly loved. Oh, wouldn't that be freeing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what God... Offers That's the existence they had. God knew them perfectly. God loved them perfectly. And there was no need to hide anything. And that's why we see what happens when they sin. Adam hides himself. He says he, he, he hid himself because he knew he was naked. He, he knew that there was sin in him and there was nothing to hide that sin from God. And so he, he couldn't bear to be seen for who he was because he had guilt But God offers to purify our conscience through Christ Jesus and his work at the cross. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from our sin. It is the blood of Christ that removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It is the blood of Christ that purifies our conscience so that we can once again be perfectly known and perfectly loved that's why each week we begin our service with a confession of prayer and then an assurance that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus so that instead of being set apart from God in Christ Jesus we might be set apart for God and for his, works. Ephesians 2 we said a couple of weeks ago when we read it in our unison scripture reading. I mentioned it was one of my favorite passages and it's the beauty of, of the grace of God the gospel there. But but another thing I love about it is just the poetic nature it starts out in verse 1 of Ephesians 2 talking about how we used to walk in our sins and trespasses. It says you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. But then it It shows us the grace of God and how he saved us through his grace, and by his mercy, not because of anything that we had done, not because of any works. But then by the time we get to verse 10, it says that he saved you, and you are now God's workmanship, created for good works, that you might walk in those good works that he prepared beforehand for you. What a wonderful blessing that he would take us from walking in sins and trespasses, save us, change us, renew us, give us life, and then set us forth to walk in the good works that he prepared for us. That's what he desires. He wants to cleanse us from our sin, to purify our conscience, and then turn our attention toward his work, not to earn anything, but because He has lavished His riches upon us. And the way God breaks down this separation, instead of being separated from, us, from Him, making us separated for Him, separated from all other people as His people, the way He does it, it's, it's just shocking, really. You know, as I drive south to visit family, in St. Louis, or if we go down to Oklahoma, or even down to Texas, as we drive across Missouri, I, I I love the the hills that are down there. We drive through the Ozarks and the the foothills of the Ozarks, and and it's sad because I almost don't notice it anymore. But but there are these hills that once stood in the way of the road <laughs> that are no longer in the way. Some sometimes you go around a hill, sometimes you go over a hill. But oftentimes what they did in Missouri along the hills there is they, they dynamited the hills. And they they blew holes in them so that you could just drive straight through. And you could see the as you drive by kind of the, the hills on either side of you where they blasted away way through. And and it's sad because, like I said, I, I almost don't notice them anymore because, because I've seen it so many times. It's really an amazing thing that they're able to do that, that they're able to blow through those hills, those obstacles that, that would have separated the road from being able to get from point A and point B, right? But They've, they've created that, that way. Sometimes I think we don't notice the things that are familiar to us in the gospel. Sometimes we fail to notice how incredible it is you know, we, we had Easter last week and we talked about how Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that great? Rose from the dead. Wait a second. He he rose from the dead. You know, he he was he was actually dead. Just think about that. Anybody who's lost a loved one knows what it's like to have somebody dead. And dead is dead. But Jesus rose from the dead. And even before that, if we go back when he first became a human being, this is the eternal, infinite creator God of the universe. He took up residence in a human body as a little baby. It's incredible. And yet, we do the Christmas story, you know, we, oh, cute little baby Jesus in the manger, isn't that wonderful? Ho hum. We should be amazed by these things every time we think of them. We should be amazed how God has worked. You know, John 1 tells us, as we read before, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. It's incredible. And verse 14 of John 1 says "And he dwelt among us. Literally, you know what that that word that's translated dwelt there, it literally means he, he pitched his tent among us, or he tabernacled among us. You see, it's the same idea. He, he pitched his tent. He made a tabernacle in our midst, is what it says. And so it is that the tabernacle of the Old Testament points forward to his tabernacling with us. And we see that curtain that was erected, that veil that separated the parts one from another, We remember that curtain as we fast forward to Good Friday and what happened when Jesus died. He he breathed his last and we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, a a way was made where God was once separated from man. Now the, the, the curtain was ripped apart. It was as if it were a mountain being dynamited so that it no longer stood in the way. You could get from point A to point B. We now had access to God through Christ Jesus because the curtain has been torn from top to bottom, not just partially. Top to bottom, the whole thing is gone. A big gaping hole is there. And through Christ Jesus, we now can enter. That's why Jesus said he was the temple. He was the place where God and man met. He was the place where sacrifice was was made He was the temple that he spoke of when he said, "Destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it, I will raise it." And so it is the verse 12 tells us that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He did that once for all. remember the priests? had their annual and daily sacrifices that, that by their very nature spoke to their lack of efficacy, didn't they? Because they had to do them over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it just kept going forever and ever and ever and it would never end. But Christ came. And at the cross, he says, it is finished the debt is paid there is no more left to be paid it is forgiven your sins are forgiven and not forgiven like the way we forgive things you know this is the way i forgive things i get in a fight with my wife maybe and and she says something and i say something i say okay well i i forgive you it's all right i'm sorry i forgive you and then the next day i bring it back up again you know, and then a week later I'm still bitter over the fact that she said it. No, it's all right. I forgive you. But remember 2 years ago when you did that one thing? <laughs> yeah, that thing I forgave you for? Yeah. That's the way we forgive, isn't it? But that's not the way God forgives. He truly forgives. He truly forgives. He says, "I will remember their sins no More. What freedom there is in that. That our consciences can be clean. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today? Well, it means that we can have a clean conscience for one, that we can know that we are forgiven of our sins, that we can have access to God and a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, and that's the most important thing. But beyond that, what does it mean for us? I I think it means that, that we, in turn, need to learn how to forgive like God forgives. We need to learn how to say, I'm sorry, and when somebody says I'm sorry to us, we need to, Be able to mean it when we say, that's all right, you're forgiven. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we're supposed to forgive. And we pray every week. I said this a couple of Wednesday nights back. We pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's the kind of forgiveness we're asking God for. We say, God, forgive me the way I forgive others. We say that every Sunday here. Forgive me like I forgive others. Do we really mean those words when we say them? Or do we really mean, God, forgive me a whole lot better than I forgive others? That's really what my heart says. But that's not the way Jesus taught me to pray. Jesus taught me to pray, forgive my sins as I forgive others. And so that necessitates me forgiving the sins of others. We do that not because it's deserved, but because it's needed. And because Jesus forgave us when we needed forgiveness and not necessarily deserved it. And finally, we need to realize that in response to this forgiveness, we should serve God. We serve him not begrudgingly, not just as a duty, not just kind of, oh man, something's got to get done at church. I guess I'll do it. i got better things to do with my time, but whatever. Not that kind of heart. Nor the kind of heart that says, you know, I put in a lot of hours at church last year. I'm sure God's pretty happy with me now. I'm probably going to get good seats on the bus to heaven. Neither of those is right. The idea is that God has already loved us. He has already blessed us. He has already given us his forgiveness and cleansed our conscience and and cleansed our souls and given us new life. And so we respond by serving him. Just as he says, I... God loves a cheerful giver, right? That's not just in terms of money. It's time and talent and service and, and love. We should love and serve cheerfully. For he has loved and served us. We give all to him because he has given all for us. And because we know how blessed we are to no longer be separated from God, but rather to be separated for God. Please pray with me. Our Lord, it is a great blessing to be separated unto you, the great God of the universe, the the one who has created all things, the one who has done mighty works that we can hardly comprehend. Perhaps the mightiest of these works, though, was taking sinners such as us and through your Son making us saints by the blood of the Lamb. We thank you for this great gift. We pray that you would indeed use us for your service. Teach us to be more like Christ Jesus. Transform us into his likeness and help us to serve you that through our service, through our love, we might proclaim how great a God you are.